Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The volatile nature of financial markets, married to the peculiarities of human psychology, can cause many investors to be unduly pessimistic. Yet, remaining an optimist and remaining invested is the surest way to achieve the unrivaled long-term returns of the stock market. Today we discuss why optimism about investing is not only desirable, but rational, and how to spot the biases and alarmist thinking that can lead to bad behaviour. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, why hold any bonds at all? Okay, let's get into it. A couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on what happens if Russia shuts off the gas supply to Europe. Now, maybe it looks quite a prescient episode now, but I know that after it, I had a couple of messages from people saying, oh my God, everything's so scary right now and pessimistic. Definitely not the time to be investing, is it? And I was thinking, oh no, we've pushed people in the wrong direction, Roman, because really in investing, it pays to be an optimist, doesn't it? Yeah, because there's always something to worry about. And some people talk about investing in equity as climbing a wall of worry. So there are always things to worry about. And there's a beautiful graph from Michael Batnick, who has this kind of gradual upwards movement in equities. And then he kind of annotates it with all the worries at the time. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. It's brilliant. It's brilliant because there are always things to worry about. You know, there's war, there's disease, there's things to do with the economy, things like the debt ceiling, where the US could default on its debt. And that's a regular one. And then you get kind of episodal ones, which just happen occasionally, things like a recession, for example. But generally, there's usually a huge list of things to worry about. And people tend to focus on that. And yet, for most people, just ignoring the news over the last 120 years would have been the best thing to do. As someone who worked in journalism for a long time, I'll go along with that. (laughs) (laughs) And my favourite book, the one actually which I'd say had the biggest effect on me, was The Triumph of the Optimists. And this is by Dimson, Marsh and Staunton. And it goes back over 100 years of data. And it looks at which asset classes perform best and how well they performed over that period of time. And unsurprisingly, equity comes out on top. So if we look back in time and look at US equity, on average, it's generated 9.7% per year since 1900. And if we look at bonds, it's 5% per year. And then if we subtract the effect of inflation, equity goes down to 6.6% per year above inflation and bonds to 2.1%. And in the UK, it's a little bit less for both. So for the UK, above inflation, it's 5.4% for equity and 2% for bonds. So this is why being optimistic has worked through two world wars, two pandemics, global pandemics, and all of the kind of huge inflationary periods of the past. I think my favourite succinct quote which sums this up is from Nat Friedman, who's the CEO of GitHub. And he says, pessimists sound smart, optimists make money. Maybe we should (laughs) title the podcast that. I think it's a good one. (laughs) But I think he was talking more in the context of startups, but it really applies to investing, I think. And I think in the way people conceptualise investing now, the big short the book and the movie has a lot to answer for because it's really sort of implanted that idea that the way you make money in investing is to be super contrarian and spot the once a decade opportunity where there's going to be some sort of big crash and time it perfectly, which for the vast majority of people is not how you make money in investing. No, and, and I think other people who've promoted that idea are people like Nassim Taleb, who focuses on these kind of tail risks. Now, of course, you can make a lot of money with those if you have a small contrarian bet and, you know, you're betting that the market's going to crash. It will pay off occasionally. 
Or you can have a kind of barbell distribution. So you could say, well, I'll have a core, which is optimistic, but then I'll also have a kind of tail hedge. So that could be a strategy that works too. But generally, you don't really need the tail hedge. And it can be expensive if you go through a long period of good returns. Isn't the key that if you're a bull all the time, you don't need to time the market? Whereas if you're bearish, you always have to be correct in your timing. Because of the cost. It costs to hold a position which is bearish if you have puts, for example. So those are options which pay off if markets fall. But of course, you have to pay a premium for those all the time. And that's going to be a drag on return most of the time. So generally, it's not worth being bearish. And optimists have simply done best over the last century and a half. Even the perma bears, you think of, you know, Michael Burry from The Big Short. If you look at his portfolio, he has a lot of long positions. He's not always short the market. And if he was always short, then he'd lose out because most of the time equity (laughs) goes up. So that's why I think, you know, some people who is described as perma bears, people like Nassim Taleb, people like Michael Burry. Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy Grantham's another one. They're long a lot of the time because they have to be. If they weren't, they'd just be catastrophic investors. But of course, they get famous because they say negative things. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Look at what people say and then look at what their portfolio is. And you might often find that those two are very different. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. And I think the reason they became famous is, well, one, they say interesting things, but also it taps into a part of human psychology, that inner pessimist in us. And if you look, there's a lot of research on optimism and a lot of kind of contradictions in human nature. So I've heard it described that the research shows we're private optimists and public pessimists, which is to say that when you look at the data of surveys that have been done, people are generally pretty optimistic about their own future. They think their job prospects are going to get better in the next year, almost always, and they think their life is going to get better. But when you ask them about the state of their nation and the world, they're deeply pessimistic and say it's going to go the wrong way. So how can everyone be an optimist about themselves, whereas think the society is going to go down, right? It doesn't add up. (laughs) And I know from personal experience that if I say something negative, it gets a lot more feedback than something which is positive. People say you're naive if you're positive about the future. But if I have some video that's saying that markets are going to crash, that gets a huge amount of traction. So what I have to do is sneak in a title that says crash in it and then actually be quietly (laughs) optimistic. (laughs) Yeah, get them through the door with the, uh, the clickbait. Yeah, that's really noticeable. And if you look at the really big accounts on YouTube, particularly for finance, you'll see a lot of them are just doom porn. You know, they just repeat these bearish calls again and again. They always get it wrong, except for the one (laughs) rare occasion when markets do crash and then they come out as looking, you know, really pretty good. If you work in finance, you can build your career off being right that one time, right? Yeah, yeah. And people do build a career that way. Yeah, in a way, it's kind of become unfashionable to be optimistic, even about the world in general, right? There's this concept called declinism, where if you look back through history, there's always people saying, you know, the empire is going to fall. The West is on the decline right from the early part of the 20th century. And that narrative is just extremely compelling to people, I think, that it was better in the past and we're on the wrong path. Yeah, because you like to criticise politicians. Of course you do. Everyone <laughs> everyone does. I mean, you've got to be an optimist to look at the state of the UK and think, oh, it's all going to go well now. <laughs> the, the parade of just shocking decisions and politicians we've had over the last few decades. But that's why I love these books and ideas which do look over the long term and show how much better things are than they were just a few decades ago. So, for example, I love the book by Steven Pinker, 
the better angels of our nature. Yeah, that's right. So he published that in 2011. And he has some brilliant facts in it. So for example, if you look at Western European people, they have one thirty-fifth the chance of being murdered than their medieval ancestors. And violence generally he shows, and some people have questioned the statistics, but he says that violence has very much declined over time. And it's largely because of rule of law, but also a change in the way society was structured from a feudal system to a kind of centralised power system, which is much more legally based. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. And I think the idea that we look at the past with rose-tinted spectacles has some basis in evidence. So when researchers have looked at memory and how old people think about the past, there's one period of their life which always comes to the forefront and is overweighted in memory, and that is between the ages of 10 and 30. That kind of early teenage and adulthood period stays prominent in people's minds for a long time. And, you know, everyone looks at that part of their life and thinks, oh, wasn't it great back then? Summers were nicer, I was healthier, looked better. (laughs) So (laughs) the past always seems better. (laughs) And yet, if you actually look at that point in my life, I mean, it was a period of really high inflation. The UK was pretty stuffed economically. But, you know, I just have happy memories of those childhood years. But of course, for many people, it was a really tough time. And it's easy to forget how much things have improved since then, even since the 70s when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't think there ever was the golden age, was there? I mean, it's interesting how much that idea of declinism has come into the popular consciousness. Like, obviously, Trump ran on a Make America Great Again platform, which is implying that, you know, it was in a period of decline. And yet America is great. And so are many other countries across the world in developed markets, at least. And also in emerging markets. That's another thing which is really noticeable. There's a thing called the Gapminder Institute, which was founded by Hans Rosling. I don't know if you've seen his videos about health and wealth. Yeah, I have seen them, yeah. What he shows is this beautiful graph, which has bubbles on it, which show you the population of each country. And he plots it on two dimensions. One is the average life expectancy, the other one is average income. And what gradually happens over time is that all these populations get richer and healthier. They live longer, they have more money. And the big change you see in 2000, this huge shift upwards in wealth and health largely due to India and China improving on those two measures. I think it's easy to say things are getting worse, but what you have to do is look at what's happening to the average human on the planet. Oh yeah, definitely. There's another fantastic website, ourworldindata.org, which kind of summarises this all up. Because if you ask people in rich developed countries, is the world on average getting wealthier or poorer? People say it's getting poorer. But if you ask in emerging markets or developing countries... They say that it's getting richer because they know they can see it on the ground that, you know, (laughs) people's standards of living are improving. And there's this concept in psychology where, again, we're local optimists, but far more pessimistic about places far away. You can look at it on a national level. So if you ask people about, say, crime, they say, oh, yeah, it's pretty nice around here. We don't have much crime. But if you ask them, is there much crime in the country? Is it getting worse? Like, yeah, they're always saying (laughs) crime's getting worse, despite the stats showing it isn't. And it's interesting, if you look at where people are most xenophobic, it's usually in areas where the actual ethnic minority population is very low, which is rather odd. I suppose if you actually speak to people who are from other countries, then you realise they're actually not so bad. Yeah, it's fear of immigration and fear of crime rather than actual experience of it. And yet politicians make good mileage out of this. So saying things like, we wouldn't have a veto on Turkey joining the EU, played really well with a large part of the electorate. So politicians clearly know that they can play to these cognitive biases. But that's why I think it's so important to be grounded in data. 
And that's why I think websites like the Gapminder Institute are great, because they actually have a quiz which you can do to see how biased your opinions are. And I, I, I did the quiz just before this, right. and I did pretty well. But there were some things that were really surprising. So the average life expectancy in the world right now is, would you say, 50, 60 or 70 years? Oh, 70. Yeah, 70. And it's high. And if you look across much of the emerging markets, the data for things like amateur electricity they've got on average for their population are much higher than people think. Also, the quality of healthcare, much better than people think. So you might be listening to this and thinking, I didn't tune into an investing podcast to hear about half-baked pop psychology. Well, I'll say two things. One, I'm afraid it appears you did. Two, we are going to tie this into investing now. So how does this bias to pessimism, in a sense, misguide us when it comes to, say, expected returns from assets in the future? There are a couple of effects here which are kind of interesting and which screw up our investing attitudes. And I think the first one is fear of losses. So there are very many studies which show that we have a lot of risk aversion. In other words, a loss of a certain size is much more horrible than the desirability of a gain of the same size. So there's an asymmetry between gains and losses. And in mathematics, you'd call this a utility function. The utility function is weighted towards losses. I think it plays out in all sorts of areas of our lives, doesn't it? So, you know, if you've got two kids, one of them dying is going to be far more an effect on your life than having a third child. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one. Another one is relationships where some people actually hold back from relationships because you don't want to get hurt. Investing is exactly the same. You know, people are scared of putting money into equity markets because of the fear of loss. And yet, if you actually look at the probability of loss, it's pretty low. You know, people think about crashes, but crashes play a very small part in investing. So you mentioned earlier that if we look back over a century or so, US equity has returned, what was it, about 9% in nominal terms and 6 point something in real terms. But that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, over our lifetime going forward, let's say the next 30 years, we're going to experience that same level of return, does it? No, it doesn't. All you can really do is calibrate your beliefs based on the past and just hope that the future resembles it. But, you know, I think that's better than just saying, oh, everything's going to be terrible. And I think this is going to happen. That's going to happen. I think really grounding in data is all we can do. And that's why I think this empirical approach to investing is probably the best one, in part to allay people's fears, but also to work out what the best strategies are. There is another bias, which is also kind of interesting, which is we like lottery ticket payoffs. So if there is a huge payoff with a low probability, people love that. You know, that's why people gamble. And I think that's the other kind of pole of bad behaviour, which is that people think of investing as, you know, getting these 10-time returns over a very short period of time. Whereas, in fact, that recipe, that approach to investing is very unlikely to succeed. Much better is simply to have reasonable returns for long periods of time. So they call that lottery ticket payoff. That's what you get with things like private equity, for example, or call options on single stocks things that potentially could be very exciting. A part of that is just our brains are not scaled for large numbers, right? If you ask people conceptually the difference between a one in a million chance and a one in a billion chance, we just think, oh, it's just very unlikely to happen either one of those. But there's a huge, huge difference between those two <laughs> probabilities. But again, you know, you can describe this statistically. If you look at the distribution of returns for a given asset, the ones which have these huge upward tails are the ones which people are kind of attracted to. You know, there's huge low probability payoffs. 
But the ones which actually have a negatively skewed payoff are the ones where the average return is actually better. So, you know, that's why if it looks boring, it's probably a good investment. It seems counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that the incentives for the people selling the financial products are skewed. So you can charge higher fees for the exciting lottery ticket stuff, but you're not going to get rich telling people to buy index funds and hold it for 30 years, are you, Roman? (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting that the reason why these lottery ticket payoffs generally underperform isn't because you don't get the payoffs. You do sometimes. It's because people overpay for it. Yeah. And that's why, you know, you know, they're really easy to market the products, as you say. Yeah, in the aggregate, people lose. Yeah, that's right. So if we're thinking about expected returns of the broad asset classes, we're talking about equity and bonds on a global basis. There are many analysts and institutions which try to produce 10-year forecasts. Now, I'm sure it's an extremely difficult thing to do with many variables which are hard to model. But it's pretty consistent if you look at what the big investment banks are saying and institutions like Schroeder's, they're all expecting lower returns going forward over the next 10 years than we've had on average in the past. There's a few reasons that keep cropping up. There's the fact we're in a low interest rate environment. I know they're going up now, but by historical standards, they're still low. We've got low growth and we've got pretty high equity valuations. They've come down a bit this year, but they're still relatively high on a lot of valuation measures. Do you think there's anything in this or is it just guesswork? Ultimately, it is guesswork. Of course, nobody knows. And all they'll do really, I know because I've done this, is take historic returns (laughs) and then just give it a slight tilt one direction or the other due to current factors. I mean, at the moment, they're tilting it down. Yeah, because of those factors that you mentioned But this is how good forecasters work, right? They take the base rates and then they just modify them based on current conditions, because that'll usually give you the best forecasting returns. But all of those factors, and I think one that you didn't mention, which is important, which actually drives a lot of those other factors you did describe, is demographics. And if you look at things like dependency ratios, that's a proportion of people who can't work or are too old to work relative to those in the workforce. Those have been going up very rapidly recently. And in some countries like Japan, they're very high already. So I think that's a worry because ultimately we have to reach a new equilibrium where we do have more old people in society. We've just got to get used to a world in which that's the case. It does mean lower growth. It probably does mean lower yields. And it also probably means lower equity returns over the long term. Schroeder's, for instance, in their 10-year forecast, have global equity growing at 4.7% and US equity growing at 4.1%. And that was done at the end of 2021, that forecast. I think that's pretty typical of a lot of professional forecasts. The question is, how does this affect our behavior? Because I would say there's nothing you can do about it, right? You can't control it. You don't want to reach for yield. It just is what it is. Yeah, and I think people just have to get used to the fact that returns will be lower and just accommodate that into their planning for the future. But I think the level of return which we are going to see is still pretty good. You know, we're only talking about a few percentage points drop in returns. So that's not going to be a kind of game changer from the point of view of planning for retirement, for example. So I don't think it's going to be catastrophic. It just means that, you know, we just got to get used to slightly longer work, maybe saving a bit more compared to previous generations. Sorry, Michael. Yeah. I think everyone's sort of facing up to that fact that we're going to be working for a long time, (laughs) or at least pretending to work for a long time. It's funny because some people I speak to, they don't want to retire. So they say, look, I'm working, I'm 60, I'm very active, and I love what I do. 
And all I'm going to do is slightly change the way I work. So I do a bit more consultancy. You know, maybe I don't go to the office every day, but I'm still engaged in what I do because it's, it's part of who they are. Whereas some people I speak to, they just say, the minute I can walk out of that job will be the best minute of my life. Yeah. But remember, most people probably aren't in that situation where they're in a career where they can transition into part-time consulting. True, true. Obviously, the people I speak to are very... Oh, yeah, you're part of the bourgeoisie, Roman. We know this. (laughs) (laughs) There was an interesting piece on Morningstar recently titled Why Optimism is a Secret Weapon in Investing. So this was an interview with Larry Siegel, who's an author and financial researcher. And there's a quote in that I quite liked. To summarize, the interviewer says, optimism is perhaps a secret weapon because you're more likely to stick with your investments and your plan when things go wrong. But it's hard to be optimistic for the long term because of how unknowable things are. And they ask, is the equity risk premium therefore compensation for subjecting ourselves to that unknowability? And Siegel says, yes, there are two kinds of risks. One is the fluctuations in asset prices. And we all know what that is. You know, the kind of markets up and down, down 20 odd percent this year. But then he says the other kind of risk is actually more profound, and it's the possibility that our general expectations for assets are wrong. So again, he refers to the historical returns of around 7% and says they are likely to be lower going forward. So I guess the risk is if people are modelling their retirement off too optimistic returns, then they could get into trouble. And here, recency bias is going to be a problem because if people have grown up in this period when, you know, they made a thousand percent with crypto, or they've had 20% returns over a decade on average, then going to a world in which you get 6% return, nominal perhaps, would be pretty shocking. And certainly if they've planned for 20% return per year, then that's going to be a real problem. They're not going to save enough and they'll have a nasty shock a few years into that process. Hopefully they'll monitor it. (laughs) You know, they'll know that something's gone wrong. And when we've talked about how important it is to be optimistic for the long term, But I guess we have to sort of temper that with you've got to be optimistic in the right way. You can't just pile into really risky assets and be like, it's all going to be fine. (laughs) I'll get, you know, 20% returns a year. And the focus on return is probably a mistake. I think for a lot of people, the thing to focus on is your financial goals. So the nightmare scenario would be one in which all of the equity growth that we've seen in the past due to profit growth suddenly dries up and equity prices stop rising in aggregate. Now, that's very unlikely but it's not impossible. There's no rule of physics which says that, you know, equity is always going to go up. All we can really do is say that companies historically have managed to grow their profits. And that's why optimism has worked in the past. Will it work in the future? We've just got to hope. Yeah, I think that's true. There's one thing that is worrying, which is termed the productivity paradox. And this basically says that productivity, which is how much economic output is produced for each hour of labour, has really stagnated in many countries, America and much of the West. And if you think about it, productivity is what drives the economy upwards and therefore corporate profits and wages. All these things rely on increasing productivity. And there's various people trying to sort of solve the paradox of why hasn't productivity been growing, especially when we've had all these new innovations around IT and new technology. You're going to talk about Robert Gordon now, aren't you? (laughs) Am I? Yeah, I did like the book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Now, I don't want to do him a disservice, but you could probably kind of summarize that book by saying all the big innovations which really changed our lives and boosted productivity came in the latter half of the 19th and early part of the 20th century. Electricity, motor cars, labor-saving devices at home, which allowed women to go into the workforce. So you can kind of summarize it by saying... 
nothing we invent now is going to be as revolutionary as the toilet and electricity. I mean, it's a pessimistic argument. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of self-selecting because, of course, you can look back and say which were the really groundbreaking innovations. But I think probably at the moment, you know, there are 20 technologies which are being developed, which probably could lead to as profound a change as those two. But it's impossible to know what they are when you're at the coalface at the time. So I think it's a little bit pessimistic to say that. No, I agree. But I like the argument because it's so counter to what I think as a sort of technological optimist. Now, one of the interesting ones, actually, that he talks about is computers, where although people now have one computer each, usually at work, if it's an office, then you might expect them to be more productive than they were in the past when presumably they didn't have a computer. Yeah, but Twitter's put pay to that, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but you look at it now and you just see people are not more productive. And I think a lot of children, when they go and visit their parents during one of these kind of work days and they see what a parent does day to day, sitting in front of a desk, reading email, sending email, speaking on the phone perhaps, it's very hard to see how that generates anything useful. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, the counter-argument, the optimist's argument here is that it's always taken time for new technologies to spread and for people to use them properly in the workforce. So, for example, the electric motor was, you know, invented 1880s or so, but it didn't really start generating big gains in productivity until the 1920s, where, you know, it was brought into production assembly lines and really revolutionised how we do manufacturing. And there are other things, things like nanotechnology or perhaps advances in biotechnology, which really could revolutionise many things, many aspects of our life. Well, I think the point here was that just we've invented a lot of good stuff already. It's just we need to learn how to use it properly and not just, you know, post gifts of cats all day long. <laughs> but that's the other point, which is that if you did have these completely transformative technologies like AI and having essentially robots do a lot of the work, which is something we've discussed before, what would you do with your time? Would that still be a productive environment? I think a lot of science fiction deals with this. If you go to a post-scarcity economy, then you know a lot of this stuff that we do with investment would become irrelevant anyway. You don't need retirement funds if essentially all of your needs are looked after free of charge by a universal fabricator or whatever it is. Okay, well, I'm not going to bet on that. I'm going to keep saving for my retirement. <laughs> I think in the more immediate term, what kind of nicely captures this argument around productivity is that Robert Gordon took on a bet. It's called a long bet. This is like the one Warren Buffett did, right? With a hedge fund manager that the S&P would outperform his fund of funds and Warren Buffett won. So this one's kind of about productivity. So on the one side is Robert Gordon saying, you know, productivity is going to continue to be poor. And on the other side is a guy called Eric Brynjolfsson. Apologies if I've got that wrong. And so the bet is around this, that private non-farm business productivity growth. Pff, yeah. So that will average over 1.8% per year from 2020 till 2029. So over that decade. So these are 10-year bets, aren't they? Yeah. And if you want to put that in some historical context, productivity growth in the US between 1948 and 1972 was 3.2% per year. Then it dipped between the 70s and the mid 90s to 1.5%. Then we did get a bump from the kind of internet and IT revolution to 3.3% from 96 to 2004. And since then, it's been you know well below 2%. And so Brynjolfsson's argument is that AI, like you say, is really going to start accelerating our growth and our productivity. 
And also the macro situation with all the fiscal stimulus and a tighter labor market is going to mean companies have to embrace automation more. Whereas Gordon's argument is like we've said, we've invented the toilet, get over it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's an interesting one. You know, I kind of like Grignolfson's argument better because it's more optimistic, but I guess that's just my nature. You know, I like to think that things will improve. Me too. Whether, you know, the next 10 years and the 1.8%, I mean, I'm in no way able to make a prediction on that. But yeah, I think in the long term, you have to be optimistic that we'll continue to innovate, we'll continue to monetize and commercialize those innovations to make people's lives better. And then once you meet people's basic needs, then it becomes a question of, you know, how do you pander to that extra free time which people have? So if you had to explain Netflix to someone, you know, even 100 years ago, it would be almost impossible to do that. Or something like an app creator, how would you explain that? A lot of the jobs that we actually have now are simply incomprehensible to our ancestors. Yeah, I don't know how you'd explain an app developer. It's like a blacksmith, but for iPhones. But this is why I think it's easy to think, oh, where's the growth going to come from? I remember when I was a strategist, people would say to you, okay, if you were optimistic, they'd say, okay, well, where's the growth coming from? And it's a really difficult question to answer because you don't know. You don't know where the growth is going to come from and you can't even imagine it. You know, if I had to predict where growth would be in 100 years' time and what most people would be doing, I suspect I'd be utterly gobsmacked by the reality of it. See, when you phrase it like that, it sounds like blind faith, doesn't it? It does. It's blind faith in the improvement of things. But that has simply been the way it's been for a very long time. But then I see things which are stepping backwards. So, for example, a massive pushback against globalisation that we've seen over the last few years, largely due to the pandemic, but also due to political conflicts. And we see cultural wars, more polarisation in politics. I think that's pretty clearly the case now, where essentially, you know, you can draw a line between people and say, you know, they fall into this camp or that camp, and they're absolutely unwilling to take the other person's point of view. So I think a lot of these changes may not be optimistic for the future. So I think that kind of move backwards, from our point of view, I'd guess, shows that these improvements in our lives aren't necessarily a one-way thing. I think that's definitely true, isn't it? We shouldn't take things for granted. But also to come back to the topic of this podcast, and as you said at the start, it always seems like we're on the verge of some sort of disaster. And the key is to stay invested. (laughs) Because it's always worked out in the past. (laughs) But then I'm worried about things like, you know, the Dark Ages, where there really was a slip backwards in terms of science, but also in terms of technology and the quality of life for people. You know, you look at the UK, we literally went from the Roman period in the UK, where you look at a village in the UK or a city in the UK, beautiful architecture. And then in the space of something like 400 years, you go back to mud huts and you think, well, you know, that was a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) I think I read that in China, they did actually invent the knife and fork and then went back to chopsticks. But chopsticks are better. Are you serious? Yeah, I like chopsticks. (laughs) Not productivity enhancing though, is it? Picking up all that rice with chopsticks? Well, the Chinese are very productive and they use chopsticks. (laughs) We're going to have to cut all of this. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the Dark Age thing is interesting because it shows that there are kind of slips backwards. So this faith may not be warranted. But I think how would you approach that as an investor? I think all you can do is be optimistic 
And then if things do change substantively, then clearly you'd have to have a change in strategy. But I think on the global level, surely we have to be optimistic when we see declining poverty, we see better education and literacy, declining costs of technology. Now, providing climate change doesn't completely throw us off course, the trend is upwards. But I mean, what would we look out for to see whether that trend was ending? It's an interesting question, I think. You know, I think things like societal breakdown, global conflict, that could change the story. Although, you know, that period of optimism does span two atrocious global world wars with huge loss of life. That's the point of Steven Pinker's book, isn't it? Is that we forget that, you know, we had the world at war, everyone at war, twice. And we can't really go back there with state of weaponry now. I think war would be quite different now if it was automated. Have you seen those little robot dogs with uh, guns strapped to them now? Yes, I saw that on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think if we were looking for signs that there was a step backwards, that's what I'd be looking for. I'd be looking for a complete breakdown in trade. That would be a biggie. I think we did see that before the First World War. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, if shipping's being destroyed on its way to its destination, that's a problem. But that is a temporary problem. But what I mean is the whole idea of outsourcing or international trade simply becomes politically unacceptable and people turn much more inwards in terms of their economies. That would be one sign. I'd say another one would be education. So I think if suddenly education became much less prevalent, then that would be a step backwards and people would become less productive. So I think it's fair to say there are all these concerns which could blow us off course temporarily and hopefully not permanently. But the thing is, investing does rely on a certain level of stability, doesn't it? If there's instability, businesses struggle and then they do well again when stability returns. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just look at the long-term data from the Bank of England. It published a millennium of data for the UK. And that shows that if you look at recessions in the past, they were really frequent. All it took was one bad crop and the UK would go into recession. Look at stability now and it's a hell of a lot better. And if you look at things like inflation, much better controlled now that it's not politicians who decide monetary policy. There's an independent central bank which does that. Got Andrew Bailey there, finger on the pulse as always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is your case for optimism. You can't rest your optimism on Andrew Bailey. Yeah, actually, I take that back. So certainly financial stability is much better than it was in the past. And I think politicians are also more geared towards equity returns being good because it's a vote winner. And I tell you what, weirdly, the pandemic reassured me about how resilient we are because... You know, we shut down basically the entire global economy for months on end. Yeah, we switched it off and switched it back on again. We switched it off and we've come through it. There's a bit of high inflation. Hopefully that'll come <laughs> under control. But, you know, we came right to the brink and came through it. And not only that, but if you look at the development of the vaccines, I was amazed by that, how quickly that happened. And, you know, that really fills me with hope for the future. So when we are faced with this kind of global problem, everyone pulled together, kind of, and ensured that, you know, we could get through it. That was incredible, I thought. Yeah, and it's a massive proof of concept, really, for the ability to fight nature in a way when it throws its worst at us. And we can stabilise it. Like in the past, if we'd had terrible pandemics, you know, Black Death killed half of the population of Europe. Your equity is not going to do well then, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, it is quite heartening, I think that we are able to roll out these technologies quickly. So that's why I'm going to side on this long bet. I'm going to side with the unpronounceable Scandinavian name versus Robert Gordon. <laughs>
Yeah, me too. I should take the other side, but I also like Bryn Jolfson's argument. You see how much better I've said it, Michael? Yeah, this is why you're the pro. <laughs> we'll probably have Swedish people complaining that I said it really badly. It's often helpful to have accountability from other people when it comes to staying the course and keeping invested. And that's one of the ways in which I think PensionCraft helps many people. If you want to join our community and have that accountability, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, George, who asks, why hold any bonds? And then he says, bonds provide diversification, they reduce volatility, so what? They come at a huge cost to your total return, he says. So, Romin, why hold bonds? Why not 100% stocks? If all you care about is return, long term, you would. You just hold stocks. But not all of us will live forever. And usually we end up with a finite investment horizon. So let's say you've retired and you don't want the money to run out before you die. So very specific, concrete problems. What do you buy? Well, it turns out that there's something called a sustainable withdrawal rate, which is the rate at which you can pull money out of the pension pot without it running out before you die. And that depends on how much the returns of the portfolio are relative to inflation over that period, which, of course, both of those are unknown. So it's a really difficult problem. But if you go for 100% equity and then look back in time over every 30-year period and say, for this portfolio, would the money have run out? Or how many of the 30-year periods did the money run out? 100% equity actually doesn't do particularly well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the reason is interesting, I think, which is there's something called sequencing effect, where if there's a crash at the beginning of the period, that equity compounds for much less time, and then it has a dramatic effect on how long the pot lasts. Whereas if you have some diversification, then you don't sell the equity initially and the crash isn't so big, usually, if it's diversified. And so the pot lasts longer. So various portfolios mix different assets together. And if you go to the website portfoliocharts.com, you can play around with this to see how well each portfolio does in terms of the sustainable withdrawal rate. And diversification works. Yeah, I've heard bonds described as the ballast in your portfolio. Ballast is a good description. I think some people like to include other assets. So, for example, gold, at least if you use the back tests on portfolio charts, gold certainly helps. A small amount of gold, isn't it? Like 5% or something can add a diversification bonus, if you like to put it that way. Yeah. In fact, for the golden butterfly, which is one of the ones I looked at in a video, it's 20% gold, which is huge, a huge gold allocation. That makes me sick to just think of that much gold. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it. Talk about productivity. Gold just sits there being shiny. But things like small cap value would also be in there, but also long-term bonds, short-term bonds, which behave quite differently. But that actually does very well on the sustainable withdrawal rate because of the diversification. It's interesting you mentioned small cap value because that is a factor which historically has outperformed just the global stock market, right? Yes, that's right. So then the question is, you know, if you're thinking, should I go 100% stocks because it's the best return? Well, then why not, you know, 100% small cap value? And why 100%? Why not 110% stock? We talked about leverage before, right? 100 is just a random number really here. And the answer is the same, which is that there's always uncertainty about the future, and the future may not resemble the past. So that's why I think hedging your bets slightly with this diversification makes sense in case one of the bets doesn't pan out. The drawback is that your returns may not be as high as if you'd gone for a higher risk portfolio and you may have regrets at the end of your life. But frankly, I don't think people would. You know, at that point in your life, you just 
happy to have enough, I guess. Yeah, and it all comes back to why are we investing? What's the point? And the point is to meet our goals, right? If you can meet your goals with a lower risk, take that option. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. don't have to just reach for the highest return just to, you know, have a better spreadsheet. <laughs> now, I think people often mistake that return isn't your goal. Your goal is to achieve a certain level of wealth without taking too much risk and also having a reasonable quality of life to get there. If you're having to save so much that you just can't afford to live for many years, then what's the point of that? You know, you'd have a really awful quality of life. Yeah. So George asks a follow-up question, which maybe we can address. He says, assuming one could time the market perfectly, which is a big assumption, <laughs> does rebalancing a diversified portfolio outperform 100% equities portfolio over the long term? Well, funnily enough, I did a backtest for this. And what was surprising was that if you never rebalance at all, the performance is better long term. And the reason, if you think about it, again, is related to the fact that equity outperforms bonds. Because what happens over time is that the equity component just grows rapidly to become almost all of your portfolio. The bonds become almost irrelevant and an equity portfolio outperforms a bond portfolio. So numerically, if you don't think about risk or finite investment periods, then not rebalancing at all works pretty well. Yeah, the trouble is with that not rebalancing approach is that the risk of your portfolio changes over time, right? As stocks grow faster than bonds and become a bigger part of your portfolio, the drawdowns you'll experience from that all-time high will be higher. So that's why it does make sense to rebalance in order to maintain that risk profile, but also to keep the diversification for whatever the world throws at you. But the key period, if you are retiring, is the years just around retirement, because that's when sequencing risk can really adversely affect your outcome and how long the money lasts. There's a quote from Scott Willenbrock in a paper he wrote around diversification return and portfolio rebalancing, which I like. So I'm going to read it now. Diversification is often described as the only free lunch in finance. You heard that, haven't you, Robin? I have. I do like that. <laughs> as it allows for the reduction of risk for a given expected return. Diversification return might be described as the free dessert. Oh. It is the incremental return earned while maintaining a constant risk profile. However, it is necessary to perform the contrarian activity of rebalancing in order to earn the diversification return. Diversification is a necessary but not sufficient condition. While an unrebalanced portfolio generally has reduced risk, it does not earn a diversification return and also suffers from a varying risk profile. The control of risk in combination with the diversification return is a powerful argument in favour of rebalanced portfolios. And there's loads of maths to go behind all that. <laughs> <laughs> I should hope so. But I agree completely with that. You know, I think if you don't keep the risk under control by rebalancing, then ultimately the risk of your portfolio will get out of control. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice. 